2: I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, why one market watcher says the end of the bear market rally is here. Is he right? And if so, what does that mean for the great bounce back in stocks? We debate that with the investment committee today. Joining me for the hour, Bryn Talkington, Liz Young, Steve Weiss and Joe Terranova. Let's check the markets. Carl just said we're at the highs of the day. We still have lots of questions in front of us, but Dow's good for 40. There's the Nasdaq, the outperformer, good for one and a half percent. Ten year note yield at 240. That is the call, though, Liz Young from Mike Wilson today, who says the bear market rally is over. He says it was always a bear market rally. Defensives remain the place to be, he says. Boring is beautiful, and he is doubling down on that theme. Is he right? Was it a bear market rally the whole time, and is it over?
3: To me, the market has three moods. You've got rally, reality, or recession. And I think what we're in right now is reality. Anybody who's about my age will understand the term reality bites and here we are in a period where we've got to get used to the idea that controlling inflation causes collateral damage. And I think that's probably what Mike is getting at. There's collateral damage that will be happening in stock prices. There's collateral damage that'll happen to growth projections if we continue to hike rates and we continue to be nervous about inflation. And we've got this supply chain disruption that's gonna have lingering effects even beyond a war that may or may not deescalate. So when you look at your portfolio, Yes, you do want to have an allocation to defensives in it, because if we're in that reality situation, you have to have stuff that's going to hold up when we have those little gyrations. I think a good level on the VIX now is 20, and we should be happy with 20. That's much more elevated than what we've been used to at other times. So you want to make sure that you have an allocation on both ends of the barbell, of the risk spectrum, but I still wouldn't necessarily be waving the flag, getting out of the tech trade, getting out of cyclicals. I still think that there's some room to go this year. It's just not going to be smooth and it's not going to be pain free. Okay,
2: so Steve Weiss, if, if this, look, markets having a nice moment right now at, at noon. We said the Nasdaq's up one and a half percent. I'm sure there are people convinced that it's not a bear market rally, that it's the start of something anew. But if it's not a bear market rally, how do you explain what's happening in the defensives? Why are utilities hitting new highs on Friday? Why is real estate coming off its third straight positive week? Why are staples coming off the third straight positive week? Why is healthcare coming off a of positive month? Why are the mega caps the ones that are leading again? Isn't that a signal of something?
4: I think it is. And, you know, I've been looking for the mega caps to, uh, which is why I haven't reduced those positions to be where money goes to hide and where money looks for performance because the, their franchises, their businesses are so strong. Look at the move in Facebook, which I bought last week for a trade and, and still in. So I do think that's where money's is going to go. And I do think it is a tell. Now, when you take a look at what happened today, Goldman Sachs downgraded Baxter and you would think, OK, well, it's got something to do with the fundamentals of their business. Well, it does actually. The fundamentals that are raw material, resins, price increases, plastics, price increases, that are going to impact margins. So this is an analyst that's getting in front of it. I think that's gonna be the story through earnings, that margins are coming down, forecasts for earnings growth are going to be lower. And that's what's going to prey in the market. So this is a moment in time. Can't tell you not that I'm surprised by the rally in this market. I am surprised the VIX has stayed down relatively, you know, measured levels and hasn't spiked. But I think it's just a delayed reaction. So I'm still staying at about 45 percent net long equities. And I'll buy opportunistically as I have.
2: Okay, so, Bryn, where do you come down? I mean, Whether it's a bear market rally or not, the fact is we are where we are. And as Carl said, leading into our program, 3,600 on the S&P or 4,600, excuse me, on the S&P 500 uh, is just around the corner, it seems. But what's the broader message here? Why are defensive stocks outperforming the way they are? And instead of being so happy about the fact that Apple is approaching three trillion dollars in market cap and a lot of the mega cap technology stocks have come back a long way. Isn't the signal in that? that those mega cap stocks have rallied. The reason they have is because they're so defensive in nature. So it is a defensive tone to the overall market.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. I think that what's been, I think, exceptional is actually how well the market has held up at the top level. We have no need to go through all of the litany of things that that are going wrong right now um, globally. And obviously with the Fed tightening not only – you know, the the Fed hikes, but also the balance sheet. I think at the high high level, the S&P, probably because, you know, sans Facebook, you know, Apple and Microsoft and those big mega caps have held up. But I think as we're approaching earnings seasons, I think it's not gonna be about earnings. It's gonna be about guidance. And I think to Steve's point about margins, there's gonna be certain sectors and certain stocks within sectors that are really, I think, gonna have tough guidance. And I think just like last quarter, That was a very, very dicey quarter for companies that even sniffed that they were going to either grow slower or didn't have good guidance. I think it's going to be a replay of that. And so, yeah, I think companies like Apple and Microsoft can hold up and we'll say I think they're treading water. There's nothing to write home about about the mega cap stocks this year. But I continue to say that if you want to make money, you're going to need to be in the materials and the energy and the commodity space you know, certain healthcare names. That is just where the technicals and the fundamentals line up. I think as people continue to fade that trade or fight that trade, you're going to continue to be challenged with performance in your portfolio unless you have exposure to those areas this year.
2: Joe, why don't you think the bear bounce is ending? And that's what you told our producers today
1: because we've gotten a nice decline in the price of oil and that decline is kind of stabilized at the lower end of the recent range in addition to that the growth trade is back on once again now i'm not necessarily suggesting that when you look at that growth trade you want to lean towards uh, the high valuation growth names but certainly growth at a reasonable price that's carrying the market right here markets not breaking down if oil prices are going to behave uh, behave well and the growth trade is present
2: Growth at a reasonable price. Okay, I'm thinking you're talking about the FANGs, the mega cap tech stocks. But as we said, what if that is a more defensive signal than than anything else? And I didn't even mention the fact of what happened to the transports on Friday. And some are talking about a a trucker crash, a trucking crash, a bust in trucking. Um, What the implications are there? I mean, you sold Old Dominion. I find that pretty interesting that that's the stock you took to take profits in to get into Amazon. What's the signal here?
1: Well, the, break, the breakdown in, in Old Dominion was was evident both on a fundamental and technical basis. And I wanted to allocate cash right back into the market. I did that uh, through two names, Prologis and Amazon. I mentioned to you previously, I wanted to be an Amazon. But I kind of disagree that this is just defensive posturing, because you're seeing mega cap equities rallying, I think it goes a little bit beyond that. You look at the emerging markets; they're it bouncing nicely. It does uh,
2: China it does is that.
1: China is recovering also as well? And it, it, in the taxable uh, fixed income market, you're seeing things like municipal bonds. You're seeing investment grade; they're recovering the last five days. So I think there's a little bit of a message where markets are feeling a little bit better about the multiple headwinds that are kind of staring them in the face. I think the one thing, Scott, that prevents us from really building strong forward momentum and going immediately towards those previous highs is the fact that risk assets have recovered so much. Well, that kind of gives Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve a free pass to take the 50 basis points if they want in
2: May. I'm just suggesting that maybe the move in the mega caps, Joe, is is a counter message. As what seemed like a great bounce back, because of everything else defensive going on in the market. And as you said, it's, it's, it's way more. I'm not suggesting that the market has a defensive tone because of the mega caps all, all by itself. I'm, I'm looking at utilities, real estate, healthcare, staples, and the sectors that have all been doing well are defensive in nature. That just cannot be a coincidence,
1: can it? No, it's, there's a correlation to the inversion of the yield curve, for sure, with the two and tens. Of the, if the premise that growth is going to be scarce is, is there in the market, then investors are going to go and try and find where they could find the reliable growth. But you know, that growth is going just beyond uh, whether it's Apple or Amazon or Microsoft. It's, it's NVIDIA. It's, it's Netflix today. And, it, and it's also in other places. So I, I think there, to a certain extent, uh, there is a little bit of correlation between the inversion in the yield curve and growth itself. But but overall, I think it's a good signal for the market. I think it's just it's stabilization. And that's what we've wanted here for the better part of 2022.
2: Let's try try to figure out where we're going from here. Let's bring in our halftime headliner. Jonathan Krinsky is the chief market technician at BTIG. Welcome back. I mean, you suggest as well that there's a lot of trouble brewing under the surface, right?
5: Yeah, I think you guys have hit on a lot of it, but, um, you know, in a market that's pretty much range bound and I think we can all agree that's what the S P is after its plunge and recovery. You start to look at some of the relative trends of of the different sectors and really industry groups below the sector level. And that's where you see the deep cyclicals that typically are giving you that more risk on tone are starting to break down, particularly in relative terms. So we're talking about the banks, we're talking about the
2: builders,
5: uh, the home builders, we're talking about more recently uh, some of the transports you mentioned, trucking. I think trucking is interesting, be- and, and the rails because those have been leadership stocks, not only within industrials but within the market. And they had a bit of a volatility shock on Friday and, and are not really bouncing today. So those need to be monitored as well. And then to your point, the defensives. It's it's not just you know one or two little areas. It's it's utilities, it's reits, it's staples. You know those are the areas showing good relative strength as this as this market consolidates. Are you still
2: thinking about the fact that that we could go back and retest those lows, if, if not break through them like you were saying all not that long ago. Right. A couple weeks ago, that was your call. And then we had this powerful move. And then you thought, OK, well, you know, maybe we've maybe maybe we've moved beyond that. What do you think now?
5: No, I, no, I think that's still in the cards. I mean, you, again, you talked about the mega cap tech names being defensive. And that's, that's driving a lot of the returns. Um, and we're now into some pretty good, pretty good areas of resistance in some of those mega cap fang names. So you know, it'll be interesting to see as we get into April, as we start to get into some of the earnings reports. Again, by our work, it's, it's not what the companies say. It's what the stock does in reaction to what they say. Mm. And that'll be very telling, um, you know, again, given the runs that a lot of these mega cap names have had.
2: So, Liz, what do we do with all this? Right. I mean, he says we could still Jonathan does go go back, retest those lows, if if not break down. And maybe the signs are right in front of us. We just don't want to pay enough attention to it because we're enamored with all the moves that we've had in the apples of the world and some of those other stocks. And we don't want to think about the transports or real estate or staples or health care or utilities or all those other things that are flashing warning signs.
3: Well, I think we've done a good job so far of outlining all the things that are flying in our face as headwinds. I would would remind people of this. So the cyclical signals are rolling over in some areas, as we've already mentioned, home builder stocks, home improvement stocks, the things that we look at in the economy to say, where are we in the cycle? But when you look at the actual economic indicators, those haven't rolled over yet, especially thinking about the labor market, obviously still a very tight labor market the economy isn't gonna go into a recession with a very, very tight labor market. So that means we still have time here. We could have a year, we could have a year and a half. If the Fed lands the plane, we've got a really long time. So it's not really worth trying to figure out exactly where we are. It's a matter of making sure that you're staying exposed. I don't think that this is a time where you pull a bunch of risk off the table, but this is a time when your portfolio should look different than it did back in summer and fall of 2020. And I hope that people's portfolios do look different than they did. But the reality, again, is that we're going to go through this year, a midterm election year, a Fed hiking cycle where it's going to be bumpy. I think, however, we've transitioned from a time when you sell the rips. Now you can start really towing in on those dips again, get things at good prices, get tech at good prices and then hold it for the long term.
2: Okay. so what do I do then? with Jamie Dimon's shareholder letter, because I hear people say, well, the Fed can land the plane, you can get a soft landing, a safe landing, as Harker from uh, the Fed said last week, too. And I just wonder if people fully realize what's in front of us. And I feel like Jamie Dimon today in his shareholder letter brings it real clear, Um, talks about the Fed. I do not envy the Fed for what it must do next. The stronger the recovery, the higher the rates that follow. I believe that this could be significantly higher than the markets expect. And the stronger the quantitative tightening. Just in that statement alone, the process will cause lots of consternation in very volatile markets. Steve Weiss, and I'll get back to you in a second, Krinsky. But I mean, that's a pretty real view of how treacherous Jamie Dimon appears to think that the road ahead could be. Are we fully appreciating it?
4: I agree with what he's saying, obviously, and that's the reason my positioning. I don't think the market is uh, is prepared for a series of 50 BIP hikes. And that's basically what the Fed has to do and what they've talked about. So they they've tried to tell the markets that's what they're going to do. And the market may be absorbing it for now, but when it actually happens, when the rubber meets the road, I think that's when the market's gonna flinch a little bit. Because we're used to free money, and right now we're at a 2.4. I'm not really worried about, about a, a, a recession, because we're not gonna know we're in a recession to almost out of it, but we'll see it in the indicators. And to me, what we're seeing in freight pricing, and I haven't sold any FedEx, uh, that's still an open question, but as Jonathan points you out, mean it's a troubling not to see any bounce today.
2: What does that mean? It's an open as question. To whether I sell it or not? Yeah, that's what you're thinking. You're thinking of selling well, it, maybe? I yeah, Because well, before, yeah, you loved it. I want to it.
4: see what the others are Right? Report. I'm just
2: saying, like, for, forgive me for, for interrupting you. I, didn't, I, didn't, I should have finished my thought then. I mean, because yeah. it's been a stock that you've talked about right. for a long time. and You've loved it for a long time. Now yeah. that doubt is creeping into your that mind, Right.
4: Well, well, that's actually not true, Scott. I haven't loved it for a long time. Put it on as a recent trade when it got down around 200 or so. I may have had a little before that. Yeah, that's ju- what I mean. I you had recall, it before. No, I got it. right. So but it's nothing I've loved. It's been a trade. It's Still a good trade, but it's not a great trade or a really good trade like it was. But it's troubling that it hasn't recovered, that you're seeing some prices. You're getting conflicting signals from these companies also. Some are doing okay. Some are really, you know, having a tough time with with labor. But despite that, you have freight costs, freight pricing. It's come down a little bit. So is that an indication of more? So, look, I was waiting for a bounce today. That's why I didn't do anything. I didn't buy anything on Friday as I normally would when a stock gets done because I didn't have time to do the work. and I just don't want to buy it blindly. But... Look, you know, the market, as Jamie Dimon points out, is going to face some headwinds. And for all the talk that we know what they are, frankly, we also know what the tailwinds are. That's a strong economy. So at the end of the day, we're going to see who the winner is when these events actually occur. And as I said before, we'll get an indication of that during earnings season. And if we get through earnings season, great. And if companies don't talk about inflation inputs hurting them and reduced margins and higher cost impeding demand, then I think we're okay here. But I'm sticking with Jamie's view because I think that's the most pragmatic view.
2: Okay, so back to you, Jonathan Krinsky. I mean, how much does the Fed factor into your... I know you're a technician, but nonetheless, you have to take everything into consideration. And how much does what the Fed has in front of it just weigh on your view of what the market can really do from a positive standpoint?
5: Yeah, well, again, anticipating what the market's going to do When the Fed does what it's going to do is difficult. But what's happening right now, um, you know, we've we've all discussed the yield curve ad nauseum. You know, what does that mean for the markets? That's still to be determined. But clearly, it's you know, there's the correlation between the yield curve and relative performance of banks is 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 evident. And so, um, you know, it's very the market can do okay when banks are chopping around. It, go back in history, it's pretty difficult for the market to have meaningful upside when banks are, are really rolling over, particularly um, on an absolute basis. So, you know, the yield curve is, is certainly of, of watch, not necessarily for the overall market at this point, but certainly for those sector um, performance ratios. And see,
2: Bryn, I, I, I hear people use like Weiss use the word headwinds and, you know, people talk like that. And I just you listen to Jamie Dimon and it's like the guy's forecasting an F5 tornado, not just not just headwinds come with the market. If you're talking about much stronger rate hikes and much stronger, right, he uses stronger in both respects, the rate in terms of the recovery, the rate hikes that follow, and the stronger the quantitative tightening. I'm trying to figure out, and you paint it for me, how the market comes to grips with all that.
0: I think that he said it really well in the note about – and. to to, to your question to Jonathan about anticipating what the Fed's going to do is he said that this is not an ordinary Fed tightening and throw out all your models because there are no models that are going to tell you what's going to happen. I mean, he laid that out really clear. And so I think that's important for investors that as it relates to Fed tightening, this time is different. We're starting at a $9 trillion um, budget from the Fed plus Fed tightening plus, Scott, a a host of things, food inflation, energy inflation, supply chains, wheat, etc. The Fed can't do anything about any of those types of inflation. So all they can really do is slow lending, which wasn't high to begin with, and they can slow growth in the U.S. And so I do think the Fed is in this conundrum. And so when, when I go back, I did have a question for Jonathan is that, you know, from a technician, what would cause you to change your, you know, your, your narrative that you think that you know, we're not going to retest the lows, that you would have more of a, a cautiously optimistic technical view of what the markets are going to do.
5: Yeah, I, th- I think the, f- the first thing, it starts with underlying breadth. So we, we highlighted our note this week that if you look at the Russell 3000, which is 98 percent of investable equities, um, we never really got above 50 percent of those stocks above their 200 day on this recent rally. So that would be step one. Um, A lot of that has to do with the small caps, right? We know about the weakness in small caps. So you just want to see more participation. And then really, though, it's a a reversal of the defensive cyclical ratios we've been talking about, right? I mean, if if you're in a really risk-on mode, you want to see the the banks. You want to see home builders. You want to see, uh, you know, deep cyclicals outperforming. And you do not want to see utilities, REITs, and staples leading. So um, it's breadth. It's underlying momentum of of sector leadership that's really the two main things that we'd be looking at
2: you know jonathan i appreciate you being with us again another provocative note we'll have you back soon and i want to continue this this conversation about you know what lies ahead and whether we truly appreciate the risks that are there and liz you know we're coming off this conversation about diamond talking about stronger rate hikes stronger quantitative tightening You told me the other day, sitting right next to me at Post 9 on overtime, that you still think there's going to be a dovish pivot by the Fed. You still believe that?
3: Thank you for remembering that, Scott. I remember everything. (laughs) So I I think that looking at the full year and expecting eight hikes consecutively in a row with a yield curve that's already inverted is a little bit aggressive. And at this point... Powell has put us in a position to expect the most hawkish behavior possible, which to me says there's a chance that they will be able to relax that. Let's say inflation slows down a little bit. Let's say they go at it with a heavy hammer in May and June and expectations slow down a little bit. I don't think they get to eight more this year. And that will feel like a dovish pivot because the market's already expecting eight.
2: I almost feel, Joe, and this might be totally crazy. I feel like the Fed would be all right with getting the economy into a mild recession if it got inflation under control. And it's going to do whatever it takes to do that. And if if they're not even that confident that they can pull it off, listen to their statements in the last couple of weeks. It's not like they're brimming with confidence. They're unsure whether they can do it. If the economy falls into a recession because they have to be super strong on inflation, then I guess that's just the way it's going to be, Joe.
1: Yeah. Yeah, So I, I think it's clear that in terms of risk assets, we have an adversarial Fed. I, I think we know that. Um, you mentioned before Jamie Dimon and, and a, a tornado. I, I think we're in the middle of the tornado. We we know that we're in the midst of a tornado. A lot of the things, as he's mentioning, in terms of the persistent volatility, that's aware to all of us. Look, I, I just think the downside, we've seen the downside. I, I don't think we are springing forward above new all-time highs exactly to your point, because I think there are so many challenges ahead here for this Federal Reserve. And I think the Federal Reserve probably looks at this 9% plus bounce for risk assets and sits back in their chair and says, oh, wait a second. I thought we cooled off a a, a lot of the fervor surrounding risk assets. So that probably is going to keep us in this position where we're in a little bit of a consolidation running in place and I think I think take the words risk on and, and risk off and forget about them this year. I think it's more about rotating, and I think the market right now is is rotating. I think there's an internal rotation away from a lot of the cyclical value, and it's going back towards. You want to call it defensive, fine, but it's going back towards the growth, and, well, and really the catalyst is the inversion of the yield curve.
2: So let's let's address this this way then, Steve Weiss. If and we'll bring we bring it full full circle to where we started before we before we take a break. If you agree with Mike Wilson, which it sounds like you do, and you agree with Jamie Dimon, and it sounds to me like you largely do, then of all of the stocks that have run up the most since that early March bottom, I'm looking squarely at names in the ARC funds, okay, which stand out. I'm not talking about the mega cap techs. We've talked about that. I'm talking Mm -hmm. about the Zooms which are up 32% since the low. I'm talking about blocks, 74% since the low. The teledocs 53. The Coinbase is 27. I mean, Unity, 47. Spotify, 33. Twilio, 40. Is that ground zero right there for the stocks that I want to make sure that if I'm in, I'm no longer in? Because if it's a bear market bounce and it evaporates, I'm going to be right back where I started.
4: I think you're right. I mean, I wouldn't own those stocks here. Uh, and regardless of what your time frame is, because before you hit that five-year time frame, that, that's a moving target Kathy Woods likes to talk about, uh, you've got between now and then and a massive tightening cycle. So to Liz's point, I'll give her the Fed may turn more dovish, but that's going to be after a few hikes. So the damage to those stocks will be done again. So on those companies... You're getting a reprieve here. Take the money off the table and go do something else with it. I Keep mean, that, it in cash or buy really low P.E. stocks.
2: That's the that Dan Niles view, the too. That
4: had been oversold,
2: too. Right. That's the Dan Niles yeah. view from the other day that, that we brought up about cash being a legitimate asset mm-hmm. class right now, especially for, you know, retail who's not able to trade in and out of the market every single day, that maybe the safest part of the ocean right now is on the beach. That don't bother being... In the water now. He used the analogy of the pool. It's like time to get get out of the pool. And by the way, since we're talking about Ark and Kathy Wood, now she is tweeting as well. Fed's going to raise interest rates as growth and/or inflation surprise on the low side of expectations, which will be a mistake. Well, I mean, she's watched her stocks get obliterated uh, as we've had this conversation. I mean, all those stocks that I mentioned that have had the great bounce back uh, are still way, way, way off of their 52-week highs. Every single one of them on my list and all of the names that I just read to you at minimum, I'm not going to read them all again, at minimum are 47 percent still off their 52 week high, even with the kind of bounce that they've had. Let's do this. Let's take a quick break. Twitter shares. They're soaring. Elon Musk takes a passive stake for now in that company, making him the largest shareholder. So what's next? Josh Brown previously owned it. He is standing by to join the debate on it. We're back in two minutes.
7: I'm Frank Holland. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. This is genocide. Those are the words of Ukraine's president as he visited the Kiev suburb of Bucha, where dead civilians have been found after Russian forces retreated. President Biden says evidence will be gathered to prove a case against Russian President Vladimir Putin. He is a war
4: criminal, but we have to gather the information. We have to gather all the detail so
8: this can be an actual, have a war crime trial. This guy is brutal. And what's happening in Bucca is outrageous. And everyone's seen it.
7: A new U.N. report says it is now or never to cut back on fossil fuels. It warns that efforts to reduce greenhouse, if efforts to reduce greenhouse gases are not accelerated, we will not be able to avoid the worst effects of climate change. And the tie is expected later today when a Senate panel votes on the Supreme Court nomination of Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Senate Democrats would then ask the full chamber to consider a confirmation with a final vote there and narrow approval expected later this week. And on New York's Long Island, police responded to a report of a baby harbor seal on a road about 500 feet from a river. In a Facebook post, the Southampton Town Police Department says despite the seal's efforts to flee, its officers were able to, to detain it until the seal was taken into custody by a wildlife protection group uh, trying to make a getaway there. Scott,
2: back over to I'm Trying you. to think about how fast, Frank, it could actually try and flee.
7: Yeah, so right. I was thinking the same thing. Like, how, how yeah. fast can a seal get away from
2: it? Yeah, on dry land. <laughs> Frank, thanks. That's Frank Holland. Let's talk Twitter shares surging after an SEC filing showing Tesla's Elon Musk has taken a huge stake in that company. Josh Brown used to own it, want his take on it, so he joins us now. What do you make of this, Josh?
9: I, I think he should have board seats immediately. I know it's a passive stake. I know he's not uh, uh, outright calling for any particular change. I definitely think management should be engaging with him. Maybe they already have. And who else should should have input into strategic direction and management of this company? Elon Musk has 80 million followers. And if he disappeared, I bet a great big chunk of daily engagement, at least among – Uh, young men between the ages of 18 and and 54 or whatever the demographic is, would literally disappear. So I hope they listen to him. I don't know that I'll agree with what he thinks they should do. uh, But if somebody with 80 million followers wants to have say and you have a board filled with people who don't even use the product, don't even tweet, which has been the problem with this company for 10 years now – Uh, why wouldn't you want to hear what he has to say? Do you want famous people to continue to come here uh, and interesting people continue to engage? Or do you want them to keep disappearing and going off to Instagram and other platforms, which has been the trend in the last five years? So ask yourself, what's best? Probably best to listen to the power users, something that they've almost not done uh, since the very beginning. There, There are so many interesting things to consider here. Number one... His stake
2: is now four times the size of Jack Dorsey, right? One one of the founders. So that's interesting in and checked out. I I get that, but still, right? But still. And it's a single class of stock. So it's not like some of the other large technology companies that we have gotten used to talking about, where the founder has retained a a large portion of control through a dual, dual class. And I'm just wondering, and you sort of alluded to it, by suggesting as the, your first comments that, oh, he should have board seats right now, whether a passive stake to begin with becomes something more.
9: I guess that'll depend on whether or not he gets bored with this uh, or whether or not they they actually want to engage with him and listen to him. But I would tell you that when I look at when I scan the, the 13 F's um, and some of the other people that are involved in Twitter, uh, Kathy's an example I'm sure she wants to hear what he wants to do, right? She's a a, a huge uh, fan of Tesla and presumably Elon Musk's. So it's not as though he would have to do anything unilateral here. Um, So if you pull out the passives, uh, the vanguards, the Black Rocks, the State Streets, and you ask yourself, who else uh, on this list of 13F filers, who else on this list of large holders in this stock might be interested in a different approach to monetization, to how they deal with free speech, to centralization versus decentralization. Who else might uh, be receptive? Pretty much everyone. The last time we talked about this, Judge, was in December. And I pointed out that take out the market cap growth because that's not relevant. uh, Just in terms of gains for shareholders, Mm -hmm. this is a zero. Nobody's made any money in this since the IPO. Even with today's gain, that's still true. They've issued a ton of uh, stock options to employees and executives, but there's been no growth for shareholders. So they've made progress in monetizing, but it's still a pretty tiny company. Revenue, annual revenue is about the size of Olive Gardens, uh, but it's a massive megaphone, okay. and the power of Twitter is undeniable. So Le- I think that we should be considering other directions for this oh, company.
2: Okay. Well, I'm glad you ended there because that's where I want to go next. What if... And this is perhaps a big what if, but Gordon Haskett, the firm today, suggests when Musk explored the idea of taking Tesla private, he got advice from Silverlake, whose Egon Durbin is a Twitter director. Quote, that connection seems relevant. We don't think anyone should sleep on the idea that Musk and Silverlake might take Twitter private. What do you think
9: about that? Look, this 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 might be the type of asset that's better off um in in the in in privately controlled hands. I'm not saying in Elon Musk's privately controlled hands, but just generally speaking, there's a reason why the New York Times has always been a dual share class and the family remains in control of all the voting rights. And it's you don't have to agree with everything the New York Times does, but there's just something about the Times that's important to the public trust, not to get into like a whole right versus left thing. Um, But there are certain companies where it's better for the voting rights. And, uh, but I don't know if this is definitely one of those. So if we're a private company versus a public company with maybe more input from the users, maybe that's a worse outcome. The power of, of Twitter and the influence of Twitter is really, really vast and its ability to, dictate how the world views events as they unfold. Like, and, it's really powerful. And so maybe yet, that might not be the best outcome for society. As powerful as you suggest it is, and yet
2: you no longer own the stock. And, you know, your, no. your, your money speaks louder than
9: words. You walked away. I did. It's one of the worst technology investments I've ever been involved with. I didn't lose money, uh, but it was dead money during a period of time where the NASDAQ quadrupled. I could have literally thrown a dart at almost any other stock and made money. And I think I was so in love with the service and what a big shot I used to be when I was using it that I let that blind me to the fact that they were just not great at monetizing in the way that Facebook and and Google always had been. Um, So I overstayed my welcome in the stock itself and I gave up on it a a while ago. Uh, I don't see myself getting back in even though – I wouldn't be shocked if another 13F were filed and somebody else with deep pockets came in and said, wait a minute, he's not taking that thing. I want to take this thing. Uh, Don't forget, Bob Iger in his autobiography talked about having vetted this as a potential acquisition Mm -hmm. not that long ago. So it wouldn't be shocking to me if Rupert Murdoch decided, you know what, I want this. It wouldn't be shocking to me if Jeff Bezos decided, hold on. This might be better off as part of Washington Post. So I wouldn't say that today is like uh, game over and, and Elon Musk will now gain some sort of control over Twitter. Right. I think it's too early to say. And this thing's – I don't think there's enough popcorn in the world yeah. for what could potentially happen well, here.
2: Now, forget game over. Maybe now this is game on. Big time. Josh, thanks. I appreciate it. Good to see you. Yeah, that's what I think. All right. That's Josh Brown. All right. Up next, some of the big ETFs to watch today, plus all April. We're celebrating financial literacy. Here is CNBC contributor Jim Labenthal with what that means to him.
1: Financial literacy to me means that an investor understands not just the potential returns from an investment, but the risks. And when I say investment, it could be more than just a stock or a bond. It could be an entire investment plan, an entire asset allocation. But it's very important that an investor through financial literacy understands the returns and the risks that are inherent in any investment.
6: You seek the key.
8: And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. ESG, still a hot topic, but how do we agree on what exactly it is? ESG, that is Environmental, Social and Governance ETFs, continue to attract big money, but the inability to clearly define what's being measured has drawn a lot of criticism, including from the head of the SEC, Gary Gensler. Joining me now to discuss is Larry Swedro, Chief Research Officer at Buckingham Strategic Wealth. And he is co-author of the new book, Your Essential Guide to Sustainable Investing. Larry, uh, in your book, you point out that ESG is maturing, but the main stumbling block remains the inconsistent standards for judging ESG. There are seven ESG rating agencies out there right now. Can we come up with a set of standards that everyone can agree on?
10: Well, as you point out, we have a problem. It's not like corporate bonds, Bob, where we have three raters and the correlations are virtually 100 percent. So Moody's, Fitch, S&P, if one rates a company, Triple B, the others almost certainly do. With these seven, they're totally different. And that creates big issues because of how they weight the EVS and the G and different uh, factors within them. And so we're stuck with this problem. And I think that two likely candidates to resolve it, if it's possible, are the SEC or an accounting standards boards. But my view would be certainly that the seven providers have no interest in doing so because you don't need seven if you have a consistent rating system.
8: Yeah, it's going to up. We're going to need some international standards and maybe the SEC as well. Now, the other big issue everybody keeps asking me is, does ESG Actually, outperform. How do highly rated ESG stocks or funds stack up against the overall market? What's the conclusion?
10: Yeah, well, as always, I think you should start with uh, economic theory. And here, if you have a large enough group of investors, which we certainly have with something like 30 trillion. Now invested in ESG strategies, if they screening for good companies, those stock prices, valuations, PEs will go higher and the screened out stocks will go lower. And that means uh, since you're not affecting the earnings, just the valuations, the good scoring companies will have lower expected returns and the bad scoring companies higher expected returns. Uh, and that's exactly what the evidence found, that the brown or the sin stocks for a century or so had outperformed by about 2 to 3% a year. However, we have a conflicting force in the last five years with huge cash flows coming in. They're driving up the valuations of the green companies, creating a greenium in the short term where they're outperforming. Uh, We may be in the early innings here, so that can continue for a while longer. But once we reach an equilibrium, green stocks should be expected to underperform in terms of return. Brown stocks outperform. Finally, green stocks should have less risk because you have less risk of environmental spills, frauds, boycotts, those things.
8: Okay. And I love that word greenium. That's a pun on premium. We're going to have a lot more on this. Thank you, Larry. Much more on ESG coming up on ETF Edge, 1 p.m. Eastern time. Larry's going to break down what he believes is working and is not working with ESG investing. He'll be joined by Mona Nakfi, the global head of ESG capital markets strategy at S&P Global. That's ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime back right after this.
2: J.P. Morgan named a top pick into earnings, which are next Wednesday at Goldman. The firm reiterates his buy rating. That's ahead of the results. It's our call of the day. Liz, you've been bullish on the financials for a while. Do you remain so today?
3: I do remain so, but you have to be specific about it. So the reason that I've been bullish on financials, obviously there was a yield curve play maybe last year. That hasn't necessarily held up the way that we expected But the reason to be bullish now is that if we are moving to later in the cycle and we have rising rates, consumers start to borrow money differently. So you want the financials that are exposed to that, exposed to things like personal loans, credit cards, auto loans, the things that consumers are still going to spend money with, but that banks are going to make more money as rates rise.
2: All right. I know Josh Brown owns J.P. Morgan. He's not here. Target gets cut, Steve Weiss, to 169 from 170. And then there's Mike Mayo out today who trims the price targets of Morgan Stanley and J.P. Morgan. And you remember what happened last time, three months ago, when J.P. Morgan reported its earnings, right, Steve?
4: Yep. Yep. Uh, look, last three months have not been great months for uh, for the bank stocks. They, they've they been great over the last year or so. They've done well. But I think this quarter is going to be kind of squishy, as I said. Banking revenues, you know, which are the highest margin for IPO, secondaries, and and SPACs, are going to be way down for the first quarter. And that's the issue that's going to be. I'm not really that worried about the inverted yield curve. Of course, they make money off the spread. But I look at that as temporary, given my view on where rates are going. It's more this quarter. And I'm, right now, I'm willing to go through it. And recognize it's going to happen. I do think the calendar will come back. I've seen this before.
2: Joe, Morgan Stanley's yours. They reiterate their equal rating on the stock. They cut the target from 94, uh, excuse me, from 104 to 94. That's yours.
1: Well, yep, I'm staying with Morgan Stanley. Um, I think that's the right position here. I also think Bank of America is another name to own. Something is specific to J.P. Morgan as to why it's underperforming. Keep in mind, it's actually right now below where it was, January 2020, that peak, that's telling you something because the rest of the financials are above that point. All
2: right, We're going to take a quick break, come back and we'll do final trades. Uh, I hope you'll join me four o'clock Eastern today for overtime with that man right there, Glenn Cacher, Light Street Capital founder and the CIO. We'll get his latest thoughts on that tech trade, find some new stock picks from him as well. we'll look forward to seeing Glenn Cacher in just a little bit. All right, Joe, your final trade is what?
1: Final trade is to sell CVS. I'm going to let the viewers do that first. I'll be doing it by the end of the day. Bought it on January 24th at 101.70. Scott, it's gone nowhere. That's called a time stop.
2: Okay. Thank you for that. Bryn, how about you?
0: Yeah, if you're looking for a stock outside of energy and commodities, um, Abvi in the healthcare space, uh, it's done great this year. It's got a really nice dividend of over 3.4%. I think it
3: gives good diversification with strong technicals and fundamentals.
2: Okay, Liz Young.
3: Uh, Actually, it is a minimum volatility ETF. I think we're showing the wrong ticker there. But when we talked about putting defensive in in the portfolio, it's a good way to do it.
4: Okay, quickly, Weiss. Delta Airlines, flying is back. People can't wait to get away for the
2: summer. All right, good stuff. Thanks. I'll see you in OT. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC.
3: People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation.